Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shani Reichman, the director of IPF Atid at Israel Policy Forum. I'm joined by Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and policy advisor at Israel Policy Forum. Hey, Neri. Hi, Shani. Good to be back with you. Yeah, it's been almost a month since we last recorded together. I've missed you terribly, obviously. Uh, the feeling is mutual, but we were back to semi-regular programming the last few weeks. Uh, last week, obviously, with Michael Coplow and Shira Efron, and before that, Tal Shalev. Uh, very good episodes unto themselves, but uh, when you and I come on, we obviously do something a bit different. Yeah. So you went very in-depth in that last pod with Sheeran Michael, which I loved. Everyone should listen to it, about the status of the war. And for the first time in a month, since we're now catching up the past week, Hamas fired rockets into Israel, which demonstrates, of course, that they still have capabilities, um, which is quite stressful to be hearing about. Uh, we also have Israel hitting Gaza City and Khan Yunus pretty hard and Israeli Defense Minister Gallant seemingly trying to signal that the IDF has had great success in this operation. Does anything from the last week of the war lead you to believe that the operation has been more or a little bit less successful than you thought? Does this rocket fire impact your view of the success at all? Because on the one hand, I guess they could have just hoarded a few rockets the entire time and waited for this moment to show that they still have some sort of strength. Um, But it was pretty striking to see that, and I don't think everyone was expecting it. So... I wasn't surprised by the rockets, and this happened earlier this week. I mean, they still have kind of short-range rocket fire every now and then into the southern communities, Uh, but even that has really fallen off, I'd say, over the past month, month and a half. But earlier this week, uh, as you alluded to, there were rockets fired into central Israel. Um, I didn't actually hear the sirens. I heard the uh, the booms of the intercepts, Uh, but I'm not surprised by it. for two reasons, I should say. Number one, Hamas and the IDF says this, uh, may, if not openly, then to people like me, they still have capabilities to fire rockets. Uh, and they are actually conserving their arsenal, uh, as crazy as that sounds. So they still have the capability and they still have at least command and control uh, over the remaining part of their arsenal, despite the fact that they fired some 12,000 rockets so far since October 7th. So it is a big chunk of their what we believe to be their existing arsenal. Uh, but number two, and this is true not only for Hamas, but also for Hezbollah in Lebanon, and it's true now going back decades, you can't stop rocket fire, especially rockets fired from within civilian populations, without actual ground forces there to root out the actual rockets. Uh, in other words, the rockets are often fired uh, from places inside the Gaza Strip that either the IDF hasn't reached Uh, or that it reached but withdrew from uh, for tactical reasons. So I'm not surprised. I know people even here get kind of freaked out about it. How how is it that they still can fire rockets? We have to remember, uh, in each previous Israel-Hamas war uh, in and from Gaza, uh, Hamas or even Islamic Jihad, the smaller militant group, have been able to fire rockets uh, into Israel literally until the last minute of the ceasefire. So uh, in and of itself, not surprising. Uh, I will say that overall the campaign is going, from the Israeli point of view, well, uh, albeit probably slower than they'd like to admit, uh, but it is going according to plan, and that plan was always that it was going to take a long time, that Israel uh, is used to wars measured in days and at most, say, a month or two. We're now nearing uh, the four-month anniversary, very 
bleak anniversary uh, of the start of this war on October 7th, uh, but this war was always going to take uh, not months, but uh, according to the Israeli war planners, uh, a year or two uh, at varying levels and degrees of force with varying levels and degrees of actual forces inside Gaza. And so what we're seeing now really over the past month, uh, and I mentioned this with uh, with Michael and Shira as well, uh, it's the quote-unquote lower intensity phase uh, of the campaign. Uh, very much in North Gaza, uh, Khan Yunus, as you rightfully mentioned, uh, still a major, major battle going on there with a reinforced IDF division, about seven brigades of armor and infantry uh, in and around Khan Yunus. That's a massive amount of force. Uh, Khan Yunus also, we should mention for our listeners, uh, this Gaza's second largest city in southern Gaza, and it's where uh, Hamas uh, is believed to be, uh, well, sheltering in place, <laughs> to, for lack of a better term, underground, uh, especially especially the leadership. <laughs> uh, so that's why there's a bit of major focus on this Hamas stronghold, and this operation is still ongoing. Um, and in North Gaza, things are a bit a bit different. Uh, IDF is, for the most part, pulled out. Uh, so the IDF is a raid kind of around Gaza, and now is conducting raids uh, into northern Gaza. Uh, central Gaza, you have a, a IDF division, it's a second division that's actually inside the Strip, uh, cutting Gaza in two, uh, dividing the north and the south uh, through the center, and they're conducting raids into the central refugee camps of the Gaza Strip and into kind of outlying neighborhoods in north Gaza. So all told, uh, people I speak to uh, counsel patients, counsel patients, but patients uh, is in short supply uh, in Israel as well, just in terms of the overall mood and kind of tangible achievements that people can see on their television screens, uh, and definitely patients uh, internationally uh, after four months, or nearly four months. So if we're talking about another year, um, at least, of war, especially when you look at the sort of percentages of Hamas fighters killed, things like that, it definitely indicates that there's sort of a long way to go. How does that sit with an Israeli public that's looking for some sort of hostage deal? And you covered many of the different variables being weighed. We don't need to rehash all of them in terms of possible hostage negotiations, but we should reflect on any new developments in this past week. There were meetings in Paris with the CIA director, high-level Egyptians, Qataris, Israelis, with the hope of coming to some kind of agreement that can bring back the hostages. There were optimistic statements, I thought, out of different media. Um, it seemed that Egyptian officials were optimistic, maybe the Qataris were optimistic, but Netanyahu was tempering expectations and projecting the idea that the agreements are not necessarily where he needs them to be. Has there been any type of update since January 25th when you last covered this? Anything to make you believe that we are actually a little bit closer? Because I am hearing that we're quite close, but as you know, I hear that once a week for two months and I've only been disappointed. So there have been developments, but we should um, remain cautiously pessimistic. Um, and by the way, just you're exactly right in terms of the public's patience and this question of time. Uh, so the Israeli war planners aren't just counseling patients. They also tell you there is still a long way to go, um, not just in terms of killing Hamas and the leadership and the tunnels and the rockets and everything, but even something like Rafah, which is the southernmost point of Gaza. Uh, someone that I spoke to earlier today says this war cannot end 
uh, without us, i.e. Israel, dealing with Rafah, um, which is the essential kind of gateway to Gaza from the Egyptian Sinai. That's where uh, Hamas has smuggled in, whether below ground via tunnel or above ground via trucks, um, a lot of their rocket arsenal. So from the Israeli point of view, this war can't end if your goal is to dismantle Hamas and make sure uh, Gaza isn't used as a platform to attack Israel in the future uh, without dealing with Rafah. Uh, we should also mention Lebanon, uh, which I know we'll be touching on in a moment. Uh, there is a huge Israeli eye northward. And so a lot of what is being done in Gaza by the IDF and a lot of what isn't being done in Gaza by the IDF in Gaza is with an eye to the north. So as you know, Shani, a lot of the reservists that were mobilized, uh, almost 300,000 at the war's start, uh, have been sent home to uh, to rest uh, and to retrain, uh, again, with an eye to to a possible escalation with Hezbollah. Uh, and then obviously uh, that also has bearing on the economy. Uh, people are back, back at home, back at work. That's uh, a huge point just to make this long war sustainable. And, and then finally, uh, and not leastly, uh, the hostages. Uh, from the beginning, as uh, listeners of this pod know, there were two main goals uh, for Israel in terms of this campaign in Gaza. Uh, number one, destroying, dismantling, choose your adjective, Hamas. Uh, and number two, uh, rescuing and liberating all the hostages that were seized on October 7th. Now, those two goals, if the first goal will take a lot of time, the second goal doesn't have time. Uh, that the hostages are being held in very, very difficult conditions, um, oftentimes now underground. Uh, it's an active war zone. And so what you've seen in Israel really over the past month, I mean, it's not new, it's from the beginning, but it's been picked up, been picking up steam over the past month, is pressure on the government to actually make the release of the hostages uh, priority number one, because they don't have time. And a lot of people, whether opposition leaders like Yair Lapid and uh, really key figures in the media, uh, and even senior people inside the Israeli government and even the war cabinet, like Gadi Eisenkot, uh, have said that, okay, uh, now this should really be uh, first priority. And what does that mean? How do you actually get uh, those hostages back? Uh, now, 136 officially, although probably almost 30 uh, are no longer, uh, tragically and sadly, amongst the living, um, but 136 Israelis, uh, nonetheless, uh, inside Gaza. Uh, likely, the only way to get them back is through a deal. Now, there has been movement on this front, I'm happy to report, uh, <laughs> for, for a change. And yes, uh, there was this big summit in Paris uh, over the weekend, and you had the CIA chief Bill Burns there. Uh, you had representatives from Qatar and Egypt, uh, and also the two uh, main Israeli intelligence chiefs, uh, Dadi Barnea from the Mossad and Ren Bar from the Shin Bet. Now, why did all those people come together in Paris? To the best of my understanding, it was to get these two channels, uh, the Qatari channel and the Egyptian channel, uh, in sync, to get everybody on the same page. And according to what I know, uh, that actually was successful that they came out of Paris with some kind of consensus agreement over a framework agreement uh, between Israel and Hamas uh, to get the hostages out in return for a ceasefire. Now, the devil, uh, as is always the case uh, with these things in the Middle East, is in the details. Uh, the proposal that was agreed to theoretically in Paris uh, is now 
uh, being discussed as we speak. So we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, Israel time, uh, in Cairo, uh, with the Hamas leadership, Ismail Aniyeh, the political leader of Hamas, based in Qatar. Uh, and now we're all waiting uh, very, <laughs> very fervently uh, for Hamas's response. Now, what do we know and what is it we don't know? Uh, we know that, at least in the first stage of this agreement, uh, there'll be a halt to the fighting for six weeks. So a six-week pause in the fighting uh, in return for a partial release of some of the Israeli hostages, uh, maybe about, say, three dozen at this first stage, uh, likely women, uh, children, to the extent uh, there's only, I think, two children uh, left, as we, as we know, um, and maybe some of the elderly as well, uh, and the people who are in, um, say, critical medical condition, uh, they will be released in return for uh, prisoners uh, in Israeli jail, Palestinians, uh, being released on the other end, um, and also probably increased uh, humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip. Now, that's all fine and well and good as a framework agreement, but how many Palestinian prisoners is will Hamas demand to be released? That is likely going to be a sticking point. If we remember in late November when they had the week-long ceasefire and hostage release, uh, the, the the key, as it were, between Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners was one to three. One Israeli hostage for every three Palestinian prisoners released, and they were all women and children, or in the Palestinian case, women and minors. Uh, so will Hamas agree to that same key again? Uh, it's an open question. Uh, another sticking point Hamas, at least in the past, say, month or so, uh, has consistently demanded that as part of any renewed hostage deal, uh, that the IDF withdraw from Gaza completely, uh, and that this will eventually lead to the end of the war, i.e. a permanent ceasefire. Now, for the Israeli government's part, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has rejected that out of hand, uh, again, in the last, say, day or two that he's still going for total victory, uh, that he's not going to end the war. And I think by extension, that means that Israel can't and won't agree to a permanent ceasefire, likely can't and won't agree to withdraw all the forces because they want to continue fighting on the other end of any hostage release. Uh, and also, uh, I know we're going to get also into Israeli politics uh, later on, but uh, Netanyahu is under major pressure from his right flank, people like Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betzalel Smotrich, uh, to not release, quote-unquote, thousands of Palestinian prisoners. So this goes back to the issue of, okay, for every Israeli hostage released, uh, how many Palestinian prisoners are going to be released, and what type of Palestinian prisoner? Uh, are they going to be heavy-duty terrorists with serious blood on their hands, serving multiple life sentences, Will they be included as part of the deal? Again, in the past, Hamas has demanded nothing less and nothing more than uh, to empty Israeli jails of all Palestinian prisoners. So again, uh, I'm still skeptical uh, that Hamas would actually climb down from the very tall tree that they've climbed up on uh, in terms of any future deal with two caveats. Number one, we don't know how the leadership uh, in Khan Yunus most likely is feeling about things. Uh, maybe they're feeling a lot more pressure given 
the IDF activity literally above their heads. And so maybe they're actually willing to countenance, say, a six-week pause just to give them some, quote-unquote, breathing room. Um, and number two, I we've mentioned this uh, repeatedly in previous episodes, uh, Shani, but uh, Hamas's leader, Yahya Sinwar, uh, is a very close observer of Israeli politics. So maybe he's also banking on the fact that during the course of these six weeks, uh, you may see movement um, inside Israel politically that uh, maybe because the war has quote-unquote stopped, at least for a month and a half, uh, that they will say, uh, I don't know, Netanyahu's coalition will start to fray and maybe that will eventually lead to renewed elections and so on and so forth. Um, So maybe there's both a kind of existential operational reason for Hamas maybe agreeing to this Paris framework agreement, or maybe there's a longer-term view that uh, this may serve Hamas's agenda uh, to keep meddling uh, in Israeli politics. Seems everything we do accidentally serves Hamas's agenda, unfortunately. Um, but uh, let's, yeah. <laughs> well, they were holding they were holding a lot of cards uh, after October seventh. Um, so, as one uh, unnamed uh, official told me uh, last week, this is arguably the most complicated war um, in modern human history. And yes, people hear that phrase and say, oh, kind of roll their eyes. But if you think about all the different moving parts of what Israel and the IDF have to deal with, um, you know, we've mentioned this before, but it's worth reminding our listeners, uh, not just what were originally over 200 of your citizens being held hostage um, by the enemy, uh, but also very dense urban combat uh, against an enemy embedded in the civilian population uh, with hundreds and hundreds of miles of underground tunnels, again, unlike anything seen before on the battlefield, combined with uh, the major, major glare and magnifying glass of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, So hugely, hugely complicated. And uh, uh, the hope, I think, on the Israeli side is that if you actually secure the release of ideally all of the hostages, that that will actually um, give you more freedom of maneuver uh, moving forward, both militarily and politically and even socially inside Israel without all the pressure um, from the hostage families uh, and the wider public uh, to do everything possible to get the hostages mm-hmm. back. Well, you know, Neri, we can't, we can't resist going an episode without talking about Hezbollah um, in the north. So you mentioned earlier that it's a question of not, uh, not if but when in terms of a war and escalation. Um, that means it's time to put your predictions in for when will be when. Um, it also means uh, you need to tell us who is going to take the escalation to that next level. Who's going to ramp up first? Is it going to be Israel or is it going to be Hezbollah? Does it does readying for the war mean that Israel assumes Hezbollah will take that next step? Or does it mean that they want to be the first ones to get in there? Because as we all know, post-October 7th, no Israeli general wants to be the one caught uh, not preemptively striking and then have the not have the upper hand in the war. So I'm going to say something that you rarely hear in analyst or even journalistic circles. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I I, I don't know uh, the answer to your very well-taken questions. Uh, And it's not for lack of trying. Uh, I literally think about uh, the Northern Front uh, with Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, all the time 
Because from the Israeli point of view, it's uh, the more dangerous front. So if we were talking about the rockets from Gaza before, um, that that was a manageable uh, threat. Uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon is a is a threat of a very different magnitude, uh, and any full scale escalation in war uh, with Hezbollah would look very different than what we've seen uh, with Hamas and uh, in Gaza, uh, either over the past four months or in you know endless previous rounds. So, with all that said, uh, the Northern Front is active, so there is low level. I don't want to call it a war, but low-level exchanges of fire since October 8th, when Hezbollah, and this is an important point, when Hezbollah decided to begin firing into northern Israel. So, uh, uh, you know, when you read it in the newspaper, and it's kind of shorthand because it's hard to explain context, um, you know, very quickly in short sentences, but this happens to be the, the objective truth. Hezbollah decided on October 8th to join the fight on the side of Hamas and the Palestinians as a show of solidarity, and as Hezbollah chief Hassan Nasrallah said, uh, to pin Israeli forces uh, to the northern front, take them away from the Gaza southern front. So, fine, mission accomplished uh, by Hezbollah, uh, but it's come at a cost to them. So you've had literally daily cross-border exchanges of fire uh, between Hezbollah and the IDF, and Hezbollah has taken not an insignificant amount of casualties. Uh, I think it's creeping close to 200 uh, as of now, um, something that before October 7th, uh, Hezbollah would have never countenanced accepting. Uh, it would have led to war, uh, almost certainly, between uh, Hezbollah and Israel. Uh, situation has changed. Now, will this state of affairs continue uh, as it has for the past four months to the next four months? I don't know. I don't know. Um, the fear is twofold. Number one, uh, at a certain point, Israel may lose patience uh, because after October 8th, and I think I'd argue as a shrewd move to just protect your your population, um, a bunch, if not all, of the northern communities, the kibbutzim, the moshavim, the cities on Israel's northern border with Lebanon uh, were evacuated. So as of right now, the official tally is about 80,000 people displaced from their homes uh, from the north. So how long can you keep those people um, displaced? Uh, and they're also obviously clamoring for to go back home and to find some solution. So it's a major strategic problem uh, on the Israeli side, uh, especially for the, this Israeli government. Um, and from the Israeli point of view, too, you have a wider strategic problem that you alluded to, Shani, that you, after October 7th, uh, everything changed. So can you run the risk of having this terror army uh, on your border, um, in some cases, just a few dozen meters, uh, or for our American listeners, a few dozen feet uh, away from civilian homes, which is really the situation. Ideally not. Ideally not. Ideally not. So uh, how do you solve this problem? Um, and I'll get to Hezbollah's thinking in a second. So how do you solve that problem? Um, there are some in the Israeli system who are calling for military action, that you have to go in and degrade Hezbollah's capabilities, especially, say, in southern Lebanon, uh, and literally and physically push them back, uh, say, 10 kilometers from the border. And that way you at least 
uh, provides some semblance of security uh, and a feeling of security for the population before they can go back home. Um, there are others in the Israeli system who are counseling something a bit different, uh, a diplomatic arrangement, at least for the short to medium term, um, trying to be negotiated by the uh, Biden administration envoy, Amos Hochstein, uh, who's been in and out of the region uh, multiple times over the past few months, um, where you find some package that, uh, if not all of Hezbollah, then their elite Radwan forces uh, are forced to move back uh, off the border. Uh, again, like the deal with Hamas, uh, who knows whether diplomacy will actually succeed. So that's essentially the the problem up north. Um, and then from the Hezbollah point of view, um, yeah, uh, if you already are starting to believe that war with Israel is inevitable, do you actually take the reins and launch a quote-unquote first strike? That uh, if you're actually listening to many Israeli politicians and even generals, uh, do you believe that uh, war will eventually come, so you want to choose uh, the timing and the opening stage uh, of the war. They still haven't done that, uh, in fairness. Um, but again, that's it's not an unrealistic scenario. Um, so yeah, it's it, you know it could go either way, and uh, it depends which day you catch me, Shani. So one day I'll be speaking to someone, and I'll hear certain things, and I'll say, well, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that maybe diplomacy will succeed. It's not a great time for either side to go to war. Uh, you kind of find some negotiated solution, uh, at least for the next year or two, and you kick the can down the road. Um, cool. And then I'll, <laughs> I speak to someone else the following day, uh, and they essentially say, at least from the Israeli point of view, right, uh, there's no way we can live with Hezbollah right on our border. It has to be dealt with. Uh, we have to degrade them now and the conditions with the army on full mobilization and 80,000 civilians uh, off the border that now is actually the right time uh, to do it. So my mood varies uh, depending on the northern front and the northern front is uh, very dynamic at this point as well. Well, remind me to ask you again tomorrow so we can find out if your response has changed. Yeah, you'll you'll probably get a, a, the same answer, but maybe... A, my mood would be different. Uh, which which way I'm I'm leaning in terms of the possibility of uh, diplomacy succeeding and uh, uh, or war being inevitable. And we should also mention Shani that uh, Hassan Nasrallah himself linked the Northern Front to the Gaza campaign. So another complicating factor is let's say there is a hostage deal slash six week truce um, back in late November during the first truce, uh, Hezbollah actually held its fire. So if you have six weeks of quiet uh, in Gaza, uh, will that translate to Lebanon? And also, follow-on question to the initial question, will Israel actually accept uh, Hezbollah holding its fire? Or will it say, hey, uh, Nasrallah was the one who linked these two arenas? Um, we never agreed to anything like that. Um, so again, it's an open question. My hope, <laughs> again, for maybe purely selfish reasons as opposed to strategic reasons, uh, is that if there is a ceasefire in Gaza, that it'll also be quiet uh, in the north. Yeah, that would certainly be ideal. Okay, we'll be right back after this brief message. As Israel pushes forward with its war in Gaza and grapples with political turmoil at home, Israel Policy Forum experts have been providing timely, clear-headed, and sober analysis on the ongoing conflict. 
This week, our board chair, David Sherman, and CEO, David Halperin, wrote a letter explaining why the U.S. must promote a viable pathway to two states that acknowledges the obstacles on both the Israeli and Palestinian sides. In this Thursday's Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau wrote on Israel's relationship to the international community following last week's International Court of Justice decision and recent revelations about UNRWA. We also published two articles in The Forward this week, one by me, Senior Policy and Communications Associate Alex Lederman, where I reflect on my recent Israel Policy Forum delegation to Israel and why embracing subjectivity is key to understanding the ongoing war in Israel and Gaza. And another by Evan Gottesman on last week's ruling at the International Court of Justice on Israel's genocide case. Finally, this week our policy advisor Neri Zilber wrote in the Financial Times on the current state of play of Israel's campaign in Gaza, and in the Christian Science Monitor on reconciling the two aims of Israel's war against Hamas. Links to all of these resources can be found in the show notes of this podcast. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today so that our work can continue to have an impact. Donate now at ipf.li slash support the pod or at the support the show link in the show notes. You know, I have um, I have another prediction for you. It's, I think, an easier one than the others that I've asked from you. We didn't get too deep into it in the last episode, but you did mention the likelihood, and we've been discussing this for months now, the likelihood of mass demonstrations um, and sort of internal strife pushing the government to finally break and take us to elections sometime in the next few months. Every Israeli I talk to is actually very, I guess we'll use the word optimistic, that this is going to happen. But what I see is a coalition of desperate people who in any election will inevitably lose their jobs, especially on the far right, and a prime minister who's working tirelessly to appease those people and prevent it from happening. So I want you to name specific individuals who you think have potential (laughs) to leave uh, the coalition, particularly members of the Likud party. Um, who you think might break ranks. Um, there was a Ben Joriamini uh, wrote, uh, wrote a piece this week, maybe even just a few days ago, um, about the Likud party and how it has sort of the traditionalist, the traditional Likud of, I wouldn't say quite the Menachem Begin party, but much more um, sort of conservative. And then it has more messianic nationalist figures who don't really belong in the same party. So it's not so hard to imagine some of the more traditional folks breaking ranks and saying, we're done with this type of government. But who actually are those people, if that's where you see the breaking ranks coming from and not from another party altogether? So this is a easier question to answer. Uh, I don't see the Likud being uh, the Achilles heel or the, the trigger that would lead to the dissolution of this Netanyahu government. Um, and I urge people to listen to my podcast with Tal Shalev uh, from earlier this month. She put it best. Uh, it's not just one or two Likudniks that you'd need. You'd need a critical mass, I think, of around 12 or 15. Um, and that's a lot. That's a lot of Likudnikim, especially since these very same people uh, never found the uh, the courage of their convictions uh of recent years, uh, when Netanyahu was uh, going through all of his trials, when he was trying to essentially undermine Israeli democracy and so on and so forth, they all, uh, if not stayed loyal, they stayed quiet. And so, again, I think uh, they're looking at their own self-preservation within this party that's really come to be dominated by the Bibiest wing that, uh, you know, let other people take them down. Um, we don't want to be blamed for that uh, because we 
want a future in this party in any post Netanyahu scenario. So I don't see the 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 first shoe dropping coming from Likud, uh, but there is major movement uh, on the political side. So if we've been talking about the Gaza front and the Lebanon front, uh, there's also a domestic political front that's tied to all of the actual military fronts uh, that we've seen now Ben Gvir, Itamar Ben Gvir, uh, of the Jewish Power Party, the national security minister, uh, such as he is, threatening to take down the government uh, if the deal, potential deal concluded with Hamas is, to his mind, reckless and uh, that releases too many Palestinians that uh, may stop the war, that he could use that as a casus belli politically uh, to actually leave the government in a huff and uh, outflank Netanyahu from the right, uh, saying that Netanyahu is weak and that he's wanting to end the war without uh, total victory and destruction of Hamas and so on and so forth. So a major point of contention could be Etimar Ben-Gvir or maybe even the finance minister Betzalel Smotrich, uh, who, unlike Ben-Gvir, uh, Smotrich is dropping in the polls, uh, deeply, deeply unpopular for a number of reasons. Um, he has probably less less motivation to leave the government than Ben-Gvir. Um, but you also have to look at the other side of the political map. Uh, this is now a national unity emergency wartime government that Benny Gantz's uh, literally National Unity Party uh, is part of this coalition. So maybe if the Netanyahu government rejects any hostage deal, maybe that could be a casus belli for Gantz and Eisenkot to finally leave the government. And that in and of itself, the thinking here goes, would trigger mass demonstrations, that the veneer of unity that's already been kind of cracking and fading over the past, say, month or so, um, after really strong national unity, again, for lack of a better word, uh, in the beginning and opening stages of the war, uh, is now gone. Netanyahu is up to his old tricks. Netanyahu is definitely kind of campaigning politically, and his even his kind of rhetoric has changed. Um, we can maybe get into it in a second. So they leave the government, and then there are mass demonstrations um, by, say, all the reservists that are back home, and also by the old uh, Kaplan protest movement. Uh, yesterday, they issued a statement uh, demanding that the government set a date for elections uh, or else they're going to take and go back to the streets. So that's also interesting whether they can remobilize a mass segment of the Israeli population. Uh, not the easiest thing to do during wartime, uh, and especially during what has become a kind of very cold and rainy winter season. Uh, but again, maybe not tomorrow, but in a week or two, uh, or at some point in February, uh, we could maybe see um, major demonstrations coming back uh, to the streets of Tel Aviv and other cities. Um, you know, they're back in a smaller way, uh, not anywhere near what they were last year. So again, that's one kind of scenario where you see uh, the reemergence of a real kind of ground-level opposition uh, to the government, uh, applying pressure um, on the government to, uh, well, to maybe call elections. Um, there's a third scenario that I heard last week, and I alluded to it um, in the pod last week with Michael and Shira, where Netanyahu himself triggers an election. Now, this seems like the most counterintuitive <laughs> move, because why would Netanyahu put himself at risk? But the thinking is that, uh, let's say Netanyahu achieves some kind of major battlefield success. 
Um, and really the battlefield success that everyone is pointing to is uh, the killing of Yehi Sinwar. So let's say that happens in Khan Yunus, we wake up tomorrow and get that very good news. Um, maybe he tries to kind of leverage that achievement, uh, calling snap elections, maybe as part of an overall hostage release deal, getting a lot of the hostages back, but then running against people like Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot and the IDF generals um, and so on and so forth that uh, maybe you want to stop the war. And he's going to run as like the strong man who wants to continue the war till total victory, um, also trying to leverage uh, the Biden administration's calls for a two-state solution in a Palestinian state. Uh, again, uh, his campaign rhetoric going back 30 years, I'll be the one to stop a Palestinian state. Um, so kind of running a very classic Netanyahu right-wing fear campaign. Um, that's also a scenario that may be in play, but he needs a real achievement on the battlefield, I think, before he pulls the trigger on that. So to make a long story endless, uh, we're not there yet in terms of the dissolution of the government, um, but I really feel like February may be a key month, um, not only in Gaza, not only in Lebanon, uh, but also politically here, where uh, at some point political political gravity may may intervene and either Ben Gvir leaves or Gantz and Eisenkot leave. Um, and then uh, Netanyahu's position may be a bit more tenuous than it is now. So at this point, we have no choice, especially because you let us there talking about Ben Gvir and Smotrich. Uh, we have no choice but to ruin everyone's day by talking about the Gaza resettlement conference. That was this week. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. While 250,000 Israelis still cannot return to their homes in Israel proper because of the war in Gaza and threats in the north, never mind we have over 100 Israelis remaining in captivity, soldiers being killed daily on the ground, there was a celebration that took place in Jerusalem to create energy or momentum around a return of Jewish civilians to the Gaza Strip. For those who remember, Gush Katif is kind of the most notable name of a town there, flags for Gush Katif there. Now, these voices are, I would say, relatively fringe. Most Israelis are, of course, not quite in that camp. But most striking was the presence of 12 ministers, not just members of Knesset, but actually one third of ministers in the government in attendance, many giving speeches. So what was this conference about? Who ran it? How has it landed in Israeli politics? I have seen reports in Israeli media sort of condemning it. Um, of course, the left is upset, but is the broad center also speaking out against it? And I will speak for my side of the world where images like these and rhetoric around moving back to the Gaza Strip does leave the impression outside of Israel of Israel being engaged in some kind of land grab and attempt to expand its borders. And while I and you and probably most of our listeners feel certain that's not actually the goal, um, certainly not the goal of the IDF to have civilians move into Gaza, for folks who aren't as connected to what's happening in Israel, this can feel really representative and really harm credibility for the war. So that's one of my main concerns. Are Israelis sensitive to that outside perception? How is this all landing in Israel? I mean, what does the polling look like around support for or against uh, moving back into the Gaza Strip? So there is uh, no overwhelming support for that move. Um, you'll be happy to hear from my side of the world that it was also met with derision, um, not just the basic idea of we're going to resettle the Gaza Strip, which is, it's as stupid as it is insane, that idea. Uh, but also, like you alluded to, uh, these ministers and coalition members uh, were actually dancing 
in jubilation while soldiers were still fighting in Khan Yunus, while hostages are still being kept in tunnels, um, while many, many Israelis are grieving for those killed on October 7th, uh, for those uh, killed and injured after October 7th. So in terms of just the tone deafness of this conference, uh, it's it almost beggars belief. Coming on top of the fact that it came, what, it was on Sunday in Jerusalem, so it came just two days after the ICJ ruling in The Hague. So uh, in terms of uh, stopping incitement to genocide, as the court uh, demanded Israel uh, do or take measures to stop, um, hugely, hugely damaging uh, to Israel itself, hugely, hugely damaging to the war effort. Uh, and like you said, uh, a not insignificant portion of the Netanyahu coalition was present, including ministers and Knesset members from his own party. So it wasn't just the two far-right parties, uh, Jewish power and religious Zionism, that were there. Um, there were also Likud members there, uh, on top of uh, Goldknopf, who is the head of, um, uh, or one of the heads of United Torah Judaism, uh, the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party, who also showed up and gave a speech uh, calling for resettling Gaza. Uh, and everyone rightfully pointed out that uh, it's very easy for him to get up there in Jerusalem and give a speech when it's not his uh, voters and his sons and daughters that will need to go and reoccupy Gaza and then defend these ridiculous settlements that they want to build there uh, because the ultra-Orthodox don't serve for the most part, in the IDF. So all in all, hugely tone deaf, met with derision. Um, it's representative of a small messianic portion of the Israeli public, but the bigger problem, Shani, is that yes, they're a small portion of the Israeli public, but they've essentially co-opted and taken over the ruling party, which is Likud, and they've essentially co-opted and let's say, maneuvered the Israeli prime minister into not even stopping this conference, not really denouncing it. All he said the night before in a press conference was, well, uh, my, my opinion or my position on resettling Gaza uh, with Israeli Jews has not changed. I'm, I'm against it. Fine. Um, but stop the conference, or at the very least, stop your own party members from going to the conference. Um, so, it's worth emphasizing this isn't official Israeli policy. Um, it will never be official Israeli policy uh, for a million and one reasons, uh, but hugely, hugely damaging nonetheless. And it just goes to show you that even in the midst of a very difficult and what is going to be likely a long war, and even after the horrible, horrible events of October 7th, where everyone here and many around the world said, well, uh, everything will change. Everything has changed after October 7th. For these ideologues and their true believers, uh, nothing has changed. Uh, if anything, they're even more motivated uh, to continue on with their hugely destructive program uh, and plans and ideas for Israel, uh, no matter the cost. And I think that uh, that was the most disturbing uh, takeaway that I had uh, from the conference. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the substance is bad enough, uh, you know, resettling Gaza and creating a green city in what would had been Gaza city. Fine. Um, it's not going to happen. It's, it's insane. Uh, but that these people, uh, given everything that's happened here over the past four months, 
uh, have not changed one iota uh, of their beliefs, ideology, positions, um, and hugely disturbing. And it just goes to show you that uh, this government, that they're a huge and influential part of, needs to be um, dissolved and taken down via elections uh, sooner rather than later. Speaking of entities that maybe need to be dissolved, it was revealed that a dozen employees... Nice transition, by the way. Of, <laughs> thank you. A dozen UNRWA um, employees, so the UN agency that um, works with with refugees in Gaza, um, and, and is also you know one of the main uh, one of the main organizations working on the humanitarian aid situation. A dozen employees actively partook in the October seventh massacres, murdering people, kidnapping, God knows what else, right? Um, and this was from Israeli intelligence, but it seems that many other countries fully relied on that and trust it. And so they, including the United States, are now pausing funding for UNRWA pending an investigation. How is this going to affect the terrible situation in Gaza? Who's going to handle it um, in their absence? How long do you anticipate this pause of funding? Because while there are many issues with UNRWA, and just last week I know Shira was speaking about it um, on this podcast, there is a need for an entity that's not the IDF to be overseeing uh, the aid, right? Overseeing uh, supply of, of food and medicine, et cetera. So um, what is it going to look like now and how long do you think it's going to last? So very serious allegations level against UNRWA uh, last week. Um, just the backstory. So at some point, I think early last week, uh, the U.S. ambassador here, uh, as well as uh, another senior Biden administration official, were called in uh, to IDF headquarters and shown intelligence gathered by uh, uh, IDF military intelligence uh, of these UNRWA employees, uh, at least a dozen, taking part in one form or another um, in the October 7th massacre. Now, uh, I, I eventually saw the dossier, or at least part of the dossier that was uh shown and given to the American officials. And it lists the names of those individuals uh, very clearly. Also, um, what their role was at UNRWA. So I believe about nine of them, or a lot of them, were actual teachers uh, of mathematics, of Arabic, uh, in UNRWA schools in Gaza. Uh, some of them were known to have crossed into Israel uh, and taken part uh, in the fighting in Be'eri and Re'im. Um, at least one of them is alleged to have uh, helped in the kidnapping of an Israeli woman. Uh, another one is alleged to have helped in the kidnapping of a slain Israeli soldier. Um, others, the evidence pointed to them uh, kind of uh, mobilizing at staging grounds uh, just prior to the dawn raid on October 7th. Uh, others set up operations room in the immediate aftermath of October 7th. So very detailed allegations, uh, again, based on uh, Israeli intelligence and documents and ID cards found. So these were UNRWA employees. And uh, by the way, the dossier also said that, uh, according, again, to Israeli intelligence, uh, 190 UNRWA employees at least uh, were actual operatives in Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Uh, so... Yes, all told, very, very bad for UNRWA. Um, the Israeli allegations in and of themselves, not that new, um, going back many years uh, in terms of the UNRWA operation in Gaza, Israel has alleged that at the very least UNRWA facilities 
were used uh, by uh, Hamas and other terrorists, uh, you know, firing on IDF forces, launching rockets from there uh, or from near UNRWA facilities. So the allegations in themselves, not that new. What was new um, last week was that the Americans, and then very, very quickly short after, a bunch of other countries uh, agreed with the Israelis uh, and said that the evidence was actually fairly convincing. I think Blinken, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, actually used that term, uh, convincing and incredible evidence. And so you saw this cascade of countries, so not just the U.S., but uh, France, Germany, Finland, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, suspending their funding uh, to UNRWA uh, because of these very serious uh, allegations. Now, your point is well taken, Shani. There's always been this um, conflict and tension between what UNRWA does, the services it provides on the ground, um, by the way, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank, uh, in Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan, where it effectively acts, you know, an aid provider is maybe too soft a word for it. Um, in many places, these refugee camps all over the Middle East, uh, UNRWA is actually the local government. So it runs medical clinics, it runs schools, it distributes aid, um, and so on and so forth. So without UNRWA, uh, the thinking always was, A, someone else will have to step in and provide those services and that aid, um, or you run the risk of instability. And this has been a consistent line, uh, especially from the Israeli security Echelon that UNRWA, as much as we do not like it for a number of reasons, especially uh, according to the Israelis, the the content of the schooling and what's actually being conveyed to the students is hugely damaging. Um, and Israel also doesn't like the fact that UNRWA, since I believe 1949, um, perpetuates the status of these Palestinians um, as refugees. So it's handed down from one generation to the next, and the thinking from certain Israeli quarters is that this perpetuates the conflict and the grievance um, and maintains, at least in Palestinian minds, the the right of return uh, to their ancestral homes in Israel proper. And that that in and of itself isn't conducive to, uh, to uh, you know, settling the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So again, that's from the Israeli point of view. There's always been that kind of tension, um, oftentimes between the security echelon, who is looking very much at maintaining stability on the ground, uh, and others who maybe are taking the longer-term view about uh, just the the essence of UNRWA, and not so much the operations of UNRWA. Now, coming out of last week, uh, you're going to find very, uh, very few buyers for the prior argument being like, well, uh, we need to uphold stability um, in these various refugee camps, again, not just in Gaza, but uh, all across the region. Very few buyers, and you'll also um, run into an issue where you're not talking about an active war zone in Gaza uh, with a humanitarian situation that's very, very dire, uh, and that someone, uh, by the way, not just UNRWA, but other international aid organizations uh, need to keep providing aid um, to the two million plus people in Gaza now more than ever. So. It's a huge tension. It's a huge complication. Um, I think where we go from here, number one, uh, according to UNRWA, by the end of February, they're going to be in a real, real budget crunch. So it's a question of whether someone, i.e., say, the Arab states, steps into the breach uh, to continue funding for UNRWA just to keep it going and to keep 
the provision of aid and services going. Um, again, by the way, not just in Gaza. Uh, and number two, to use the allegations coming out of last week and the suspension of funding for wholesale reform of UNRWA. Uh, so that's maybe the more optimistic hope, uh, but how you do that, you know, people have been talking about this for years. Uh, it's never quite happened. Uh, various officials and leaderships come and go. Um, and it speaks to the crux of the matter coming back full circle that, yes, um, I wasn't that shocked that 12 or 190 or maybe more uh, of these UNRWA employees out of 13,000 UNRWA employees in Gaza, uh, 99% of them are locals. We should mention that as well. And very small, small foreign staff who kind of manage the operation in Gaza uh, were in bed literally with Hamas um, or, or were actual Hamas members. Uh, it wasn't that surprising to me, uh, just given what we know about, well, the Gaza Strip under Hamas rule where it, it is a dictatorship and that often gets kind of glossed over, lost in the shuffle. Um, it's a small place uh, run by a terrorist organization, a uh, very, very severe and ruthless terrorist organization. Um, so, of course, they're going to try to utilize and leverage and insinuate themselves um, into everything. Um, the problem is not in and of itself that, uh, as problematic as that is, but it's the fact that you rarely ever hear that discussed publicly uh, in an honest way. Um, a few years ago, in a previous uh, Gaza round uh, between Israel and I think it was Hamas, but it might have been Islamic Jihad, um, the head of the UNRWA operation in Gaza uh, actually came out with a statement saying, well, um, actually Israeli airstrikes were fairly accurate. And within days, this individual was run out of Gaza. He couldn't stay there. He couldn't stay there. Hamas was angry at him. The local employees were angry at him. And it was a huge kerfuffle. It's a huge crisis. And he had to leave. He was reassigned to Jerusalem. And then I think shortly thereafter um, left. So... What does that tell you? It tells you that there are certain limits to what people, even, well, definitely UNRWA leadership and officials and other UN officials and leadership and others not in the UN can say or do in terms of being very frank and upfront and honest about the actual reality on the ground, uh, especially inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, and by extension, what that w means for the people under... Uh, you know, that work for them, the people that work for them, uh, and also the facilities themselves. So again, uh, for me at least, it wasn't that shocking, it wasn't that surprising. Um, I was rather shocked and rather surprised that uh, the Biden administration and many of these other countries uh, agreed with the Israeli allegations. Um, and we have to also mention there's an investigation ongoing, so we'll see uh, what UNRWA comes up with itself. Um, but I'd like to use this opportunity or hope that this opportunity is used for a more honest conversation uh, about the international organizations actually doing work inside Gaza, um, you know, during the war, but this goes, you know, predates the war itself. And to, uh, well, for people to understand the, the influence and the limits of what they can and cannot say and can and cannot do uh, due to them being physically on the ground inside the Gaza Strip. Yeah, that all makes sense. Hopefully we hear some some better news soon. I'm very curious to see how the investigations come out when it comes to UNRWA. 
All right, Nari, with that, we will chat again next week and cover probably all of these same topics, but with updates, hopefully good ones. As always, we are looking forward to hearing some good news and maybe we can stop holding our breath uh, for weeks at a time. Uh, I agree, Shani, hoping for good news and hoping uh, that there is an actual hostage deal um, to get at least some of uh, the Israelis out of captivity. And, uh, you know, if it takes a halt to the fighting, uh, so be it. But there are a lot of people in Israel and a lot of families here in Israel that would uh, very much like to see their loved ones come home, um, whatever the cost. So uh, remains to be seen, but uh, that would be good news indeed. Absolutely. Have a good week, Nari. Bye, Shani. Bye.